Welcome to the Weekend University Podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organized lecture days, where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. If you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. I've worked with a lot of people on changing things. Um, I, my main hat is as a coach, life coach or a coach in, in business and organizations. Generally, it's to help people get from A to B. Um, that's essentially what coaching is about. That could be a behavior, it could be a mindset, it could be a transformation about who you are, the foundations of you. So I studied positive psychology, which was fantastic because, well, when do you get to study what's right with people? You know, usually we throw money at problems to make them go away. And positive psychologists have realized that just because we don't have those kind of problems anymore doesn't necessarily mean that we're happy or we're living a good life. Then I realized that a lot of positive psychologists are way too positive. And I needed something that appreciated all of life's challenges and the curveballs and everything that is really difficult in life because it gets more complex. So I was really interested in working, people, working with people along a spectrum of what they can experience from when they are okay and helping them to be better or when they have deep-seated problems or things that they can't quite let go or struggling with implementing new habits or letting go of old ones. Um, so that's something that I was really interested in, which brought me to the existential bit. Um, so I, and then naturally I'm integrating. I'm a big picture thinker. I like to think. Um, I enjoy that. I think there's huge advantage and huge insights that come from raising awareness and um, understanding things at a higher level help us um, to change behavior. Some of these change behaviors, they change automatically as soon as we have understand and realized something and not able to just kind of push it out of our awareness anymore. So that's kind of the perspective I wanted to give you. Um, how do we change? I think you have a really good foundation um, through, through mixed work as well. Um, so um, that's a good, good, another good point. I brought a lot of slides. Uh, there's no way that we're going to use them all. Um, but it's like it's good to have them and not need them than to want something to illustrate and not have it there. So some of these slides I'm going to skip through quickly. Some of the things I wanted to say later I'm going to say earlier when that is appropriate and then skip over them later. So um, that's the kind of... I, I, I'm based on conversations, you know. I have a lot of conversations one-to-one -one with smaller groups um, and I like it. It's useful to not get so stuck on a structure and hence say the things that matter when it's time, when it's the right time. Um, just so you know that if I skip over something, I made the slides available, um, you can always email me to get them. Um, but that's useful to know as we go through this. I want to talk a little bit about why do we change? Some fundamental questions behind that that could illustrate some of the things and maybe get us to a new level of appreciation of how we can change. I'm going to throw in as much practical stuff as possible from my own work, from myself, something that I picked up from, from today. And uh, I, I'll talk a little bit about, well, keeping it real, where might be limits to what we can change. For example, being human, it's a difficult thing to change. 
because we all are here, unless we stop existing, we're still going to be human. So that's what existentialism really is about. And then, well, ultimately, every client that came to me for some form of change was chasing some form of happiness or psychological well-being, some form of feeling good or better about themselves or living a life of purpose, meaning connected to some of the building blocks of what happiness is. And so I want to give you a little bit of an insight into what positive psychology has to offer on that. And changing, uh, coaching is one of the most powerful change tools that I know. I just wanted to give you a quick insight into how that could work, but also a lot of the interventions from positive psychology or that many coaches use within their work uh, that could help you make some of those changes. I think you've probably done that in a couple of different ways throughout today. So I wanted to modify that a bit and have you think about for a second not a couple of behaviors that you're going to start or stop doing, but think about the kind of person you would like to be. If you think ahead, what, five years or ten years, and imagine you'd have lots of coaching and lots of psychotherapy and you went to all of the retreats and you got into a meditation habit and you got all of the insights that you ever wanted to get, what kind of person would show up? What kind of values would that person have? What kind of belief system would they have? What would their self-talk be? What kind of behaviors would they exhibit on a daily basis? So either talk to a neighbor for 30 seconds or so, or just sit there and imagine that person. Try to picture them. You know, the, the ideal version of you, if there is anything that you wanted to change about yourself. Okay, I'm going to bring you back. I know that was only a, a little brief insight. You can take this away. And one of those practical things that you can do is really sit down, vividly imagine that person, and create that person, either in your mind, by writing yourself a letter from the future about that person. Um, may engage as many senses as possible. You know, creating a best possible self is an is a intervention from positive psychology that has a lot of research behind it uh, because that can give you that vision of where you want to be, but in a kind of top-down way. So here's a change cycle, um, quite similar to what Mick has presented. Um, first of all, you don't, want, you don't even think about changing. Then you start thinking about it. Then you prepare for it, you take action, you maintain it, and at that point, you either exit or you most likely you relapse and then there's a cycle that's starting when you learn something from the relapse you then go again until you slowly change and you implement a habit we're going to come back to that later um, because you, you already have a bit of an understanding that from earlier most people struggle with the maintenance i heard from a, a, a friend of mine he's like well smoking stopping smoking is easy i do it 20 times a day <laughs> so where do we start um, here's a CBT model. You can start with thoughts. You can, you can change the way you think by noticing how you think to yourself, how you talk to yourself in your head, and then become aware of that, and then strategically replacing how you think and you talk to yourself. Every time you hear some self-criticism, you could replace it with language in your head of self-compassion. And so you can start changing your thoughts, which will change how you feel, which ultimately will change your behavior. Same in the other way. When I 
stand like this, really grounded, and my back straight, I'm gonna feel differently. And I'm gonna start thinking different thoughts about myself if I take like a power pose or something like that. Your body changes how you think and feel. And we can use that. Sometimes I, I, I stand somewhere and I notice that I kind of stand like this and I'm like, huh. And then I consciously just stand like that and just notice how I feel differently because my body is sending different signals. So we can use that kind of body language to influence what's going on for us. So these are all different entry points. We can have a photo album of our the memories that we're most fond of on our iPhones or our Samsungs or all, any of the other devices. Ready to go, sit on the tube, just have like two moments of scrolling through some of your happiest memories. It's going to change how you feel, which changes the cycle. So a very bottom-up approach. You, you start influencing thoughts, feelings, behaviors to then influence the kind of person that you are. Because if you do that consistently, you're going to start changing as a person. There's a lot of different techniques. I won't get into these because they're not really part of my talk, but like in, there's a lot of behavioral, cognitive behavioral stuff that is really helpful in tackling behavior, uh, tackling change. Um, I, I left some links there, so you, you have the slides. You can Google any of these and a lot will come up. Um, I'm going to skip this because it would take too long to actually get into it, but I have the slide in because I feel it's a really useful model. Well, that's a genuine question. How's that working out for you? Because what I notice a lot is just starting to change your thoughts or just, just the JFDI principle, just freaking do it. You know, just doing something, just willpower doesn't quite seem enough. And while some of these techniques are quite sophisticated and they work for a lot of people, like getting aware, becoming aware of your thoughts and then strategically replacing them might be difficult to stick to. So there's a lot of value in them, but it's not quite enough. We seem to, we seem to need a balance. Uh, Sheru was talking about a push and a pull. You know, um, we, we can avoid pain or seek pleasure. I think a combination of both is probably quite useful. Positive psychologists would say, well, start with the positive. You know, a problem-focused psychotherapist might say, start with a problem, tell me about your problems first, and then we can tackle that. I think it's useful to have both to some extent. So asking some fundamental questions, I think, is important. Who do you want to be? Did a little exercise there. Um, if you act confidently, are you a confident person? How long do I have to act confidently until I become confident? Uh, we have that imposter syndrome thing going on where people are in their jobs sometimes for decades and they're like, I, why has nobody noticed yet that I'm not good at this? <laughs> and when those people finally get a chance to open up confident in confidence with somebody, yeah, I, hear, I hear some top managers say some of these things and I'm like, how, yeah, you're right, how, how has nobody picked up on that? <laughs> if you tell me you don't know what you're doing, like, and imagine how that feels if you're in a position every day and you, you feel like you're just being an imposter, um, but they act confidently. For some people, they never become confident. For other people, it works. You do something long enough and it changes who you are. You know, you become confident. I've learned to do extroversion. I'm, I'm quite an introvert. I, I'm hugely exhausted by this kind of thing. I absolutely enjoy it because I love the kind of exchange and I love the intellectual challenge. And it's up my, with my values aligned very much 
to help people learn and help people grow, but it takes a huge amount of energy from me. So I can act extrovertly, but I don't think I'll ever become an extrovert. This guy says, you can be whoever you want. You know, um, I created this motherfucker. <laughs> I quote, sorry. I <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a powerful message that you can be whoever you like to be and that you can completely reprogram yourself to that ideal version of yourself. But could you be that? Could you do this job? <laughs> it's a risky one. Um, well, I, I sometimes have that uh, example of like, well, if somebody would come to you to change or with a goal or for those coaches or therapists um, amongst you, they say, well, I want to become an astronaut. Um, and they just had their cancer diagnosis and they're 72 years old and they have arthritis. And you're like, hmm, tell me about it. <laughs> I would say tell me about it genuinely because if somebody comes to me I have to take them at face value and that's a really interesting conversation to have. It doesn't mean that they can't achieve it even though I might think they can't achieve it. But like for example, what about this guy? If somebody came to you and says I want to run in the Olympics and they have no legs. This guy has done it. I mean it's a bit difficult given the history after but uh, he's done it. <laughs> Sorry, that's Oscar Pistorius by the way. Um, he did. This guy, Carl Maynard, fantastic guy. No arms, no legs, climbed Everest. Wow. If he would come to me and say, I want to climb Everest, I would at least think you're crazy. And then I get really curious about, well, how do you think you're going to achieve that? And then he'd probably lay out some sort of plan and I'm like, wow, you know, I, I, th I think I'm with you. I'm still, I'm, I still might think that you might not get there, but like, that's not important. What's important is that you think you can get there. And what's important is like, this kind of stuff can focus your whole life, even if they never get to the top. It can give meaning to their whole existence. It can drive you. You know, that kind of vision is very powerful, very inspiring. But then, could you get as good as in tennis, as Serena Williams? Is willpower enough to really get there? I mean, that's physiologically, that's really difficult for a lot of people to get to that stage without steroids, you know, because bodies are some bodies are different than others. We have a genetic makeup. What about this? I know I have a program designed that I know I would just need to pick up the phone for about a week and call 20 people a day, and I'm sure I could sell it, and I'm not doing it. Why? There's got to be some, for, for many of you, there will be a problem that you're having at the moment that could be solved with a couple of phone calls. But we're just too scared to pick up the phone and actually do that. You know, and that happens all the time. Maybe not with the phone. Some people are more courageous. Some people are less. But that idea of uh, ontological disability, that we know I have a hand and I have a voice and I have a phone and I, I know who I would call and I'm still not doing it. I feel unable to do it even though I have all the different elements that would allow me to pick up the phone and talk to those people. I even have a script of what I would want to say. Still feel unable. Addiction. We just heard. Like, there's this, I, like, there's this um, conversation still ongoing between do we have free will, actually? Or are we determined? I'm a big believer in free will. I mean, it's basically what my job is based on, that I think 
people can choose what they want to do and who they want to be, but they also believe that there are limits. Where exactly that limit is, I'm not quite sure. Sometimes it really surprises me. I think we can probably choose a lot more than we think, but there's also really good arguments around why a lot of uh, behavior is predetermined and that maybe you're not as in control as you think. And there's a lot of comfort in that. That is like, oh, it was just my genetic makeup driving me to do this. Or like, you know, my upbringing led me to have all of these thoughts because of all of these messages from my childhood. They're powerful influences. I think there's a, there's a space where we can decide. You know, there's these urges that Shuru was mentioning, but they don't have to be in control of you. But it's also very comforting to think, that there is something controlling me and that it's not really my responsibility. Existentialists believe that responsibility is such an important thing and that you're ultimately responsible for what you do. We get to choose, but we're also condemned to choose, as Sartre says. You know, we have, like, you can do whatever you want if there are no rules in the universe and no overarching meaning of life. If there isn't a master plan or a destiny that some deity or some universal power has forged and you have a place in it. It's, I'd love to believe that, and I respect anybody who does. There's a huge power in that. But generally, the existentialists believe that you make choices and you influence the way that you lead your life. And that means you can own your successes, but you also own your failures. You know, when things go well, then you have done that. When things don't go so well, you have some responsibility in that. And again, if you think 100% one way or the other, it's problematic. But like, start thinking about that when you think about your own behavior change. If you, if you are diagnosed with a clinical addiction, then there's going to be some stuff that you feel is very, very hard to assert any control over, you know, at least in some of those moments. But there's some room for it. So quickly, share, share a story, a short story, to a neighbor or in a group about either somebody who has changed beyond recognition or somebody who really, really struggled to change. Just to kind of make this, it could be your own story, could be somebody else's story, could be somebody else's story disguised as your own story. <laughs> Thank you, fantastic. You're a great crowd. <laughs> Usually, don't have to work that hard, it's brilliant. Um, on three, could you make a sound that symbolizes your level of energy? <laughs> One, two, three. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so yes, yes, we can change. But how? Some changes are easier, some changes are harder. Um, I always loved that. Life stinks. You should really have a more positive attitude. Life stinks. <laughs> We know actually that that does something, you know, if we move those muscles, because these are the smiling muscles, uh, there's uh, the first ever psychological experiment I've done was uh, in, my, in my psychology degree, go find somebody, um, have them do uh, a com like a questionnaire, very simple questionnaire with their pen in their mouth, either between their teeth or between their lips. And the muscles activated for frowning and smiling are activated. And then they were uh, judging how funny a comic was, a cartoon was. It works. It works. Right. Exactly. There's exceptions, obviously. Sometimes it's just humor is a weird thing. Don't study humor. It makes you depressed. Um, <laughs> but 
it does something. So it's not as stupid as it sounds, you know? But it's not that simple, right? Um, <laughs> I'm not gonna play, always look, yeah, 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 here we go. Um, solid life advice? Well, actually looking at the bright side in this example, is, is, there is a bright side, there often is one, depending on our mindset. But also, if you look at that, you're really missing out. But if you look at that, what if there's something you really should be seeing? Because some, some dangers we don't see, some of the risks we don't see, and then we get hurt because we are t overly positive. So there's a danger in being too positive and not looking strategically. You know, it's going to make you feel better. <laughs> Until you meet these guys. <laughs> or maybe this guy. This is what I came up when I googled mean boss. Or the final boss, and I love this, uh, the, the National Speaker, Motivational Speakers Cemetery. I'm not dead, I'm awakened the dead person within me. <laughs> or my, my favorite is, uh, not deceased, dimensionally challenged. <laughs> so we can get a really positive attitude, and yes, existentialists, they always love talking about death, but really we'd like to talk about endings and temporality, that nothing really lasts, and death being the ultimate ending, it's a fantastic motivator. You know, it, anybody who has a near-death experience or an experience of endings, and this might be around birthday or it might be a health scare or it might just be, some, it might be somebody dying or it might be um, just any reminder that, that there is temporality, that thing exists and we're probably all going to die. And I used to say that's one of the things that is absolutely certain is that we're all going to die, but actually with the recent advancements in nano and biotech, it's not that unrealistic to think that we might find a way to uh, prolong our bodies in like, uh, indefinitely. So it's interesting to think about that, that how far can we take our minds? Uh, I've recently been interviewed for a documentary about how living to 120. And some of the experts that they had interviewed said, um, we, the person who's going to live to 200 is already born. That's insane. Yes. So think about people uh, lived to, what, 40 years, about 500 years ago? 500 years ago is about 30 years in the future because the, the uh, development is exponential. Exponential is difficult to grasp because 30 linear steps is 30 steps away. 30 exponential steps is 18 times around the world. We, we think linearly. So Mm-hmm. Thanks. <laughs> I really needed that. <laughs> um, maybe it's better to be pessimistic. Um, this is the guy from the School of Life, Alanda Boto, that Sheru was uh, mentioning. Um, he has this, he, he really values pessimism. You know, he doesn't like positive psychology too much. And I, I know why, and it does make sense from this kind of perspective, because if, if we know, if we adopt this mindset that we're all idiots, you know, that we are all human, we're all going to screw up, we're all going to fail horribly again and again and again, and many of us will not learn. That's a good position to move forward to because you're going to, like, if you're pessimistic about an outcome, most of the outcomes will surprise you as a very positive thing. <laughs> so I can see, I can see how that is valuable because you just cut yourself some slack. You know, if you 
if you listen to Tony Robbins, you think I should be the best version of myself. Otherwise, I'm a failure because there's all of these tools that are available at a small price of 10,000 pounds for a weekend. <laughs> Why wouldn't I invest that? What are 10,000 pounds given a lifetime of being the person that I always supposed to be? You know, so it's, it's a fantasy that some people reach. That is, I know it's, it's a fantasy that is possible and realistic for people if they really apply themselves. You know, not for absolutely everybody, but these success stories, they come from somewhere. You know, there's really good value in that kind of approach. But if we cut ourselves some slack, then maybe we're not going to work super hard on ourselves and maybe we're going to be less, but we're probably going to feel much happier in the process because we're not feeling under pressure to be the best versions of ourselves. And there's always be a better version of yourself. There always will be a better version of yourself just because of how time works. So what about the opposite? Um, learned optimism. And uh, positive psychologists have studied learned optimism and what you can and what you can't change. Uh, Seligman was one of the founding fathers of positive psychology and really looked at what is the science behind it? How can we, how can we learn to adopt optimism, not necessarily as a, a future outlook, everything's going to be fine, but more as an explanatory style. When something bad happens, maybe it wasn't my fault, maybe it was external circumstances. Maybe it was only like that that time. I failed an exam. Maybe, maybe the next one I'll do better rather than I'll always fail like exams. Maybe I'm not utterly and entirely stupid. Maybe it was just exams that I'm not particularly good at. You know, very optimistic explanatory style for something for a negative event. Works the other way around. If something's positive, it's not best to be an optimist because if something very good happens, the optimist goes, ah, oh, that was just luck, you know. Nothing, nothing really, uh, you know, another big achievement. Um, they tend to not give themselves that much credit. It's like, oh, it was just a one-off. You know, that's also an optimistic explanatory style, but for something good. So it's not that one is better than the other. Possim uh, pessimism and optimism both have this emotional energy to them that realists don't quite get because they're neutral. It's good to have emotional energy when you go into an interview, for example. You know, the optimist will be quite relaxed going into the interview, but the pessimist will have prepared a lot better. <laughs> not sure which one is better. So maybe prepare for the worst, hope for the best. And that's not a joke, that's a really good strategy. Then I realized, what is the motivation behind behavior change? And I already uh, alluded to that. Ultimately, what I found, every client who has stepped foot in the coaching room, they wanted some form of happiness. And uh, we've already... Uh, nah, I'll get that later. Uh, you heard about self-determination theory, for example, from Mick Cooper. Um, competence, autonomy, and relatedness. You could also make sense of happiness as uh, a, a sense of self-acceptance. Growth was in there. Personal growth doesn't mean you earn more money. could mean you earn less money doing something more meaningful. Meaning and purpose. Achievement. Good health. You know, these are all building blocks of happiness. And some form of that we're chasing, you know, either avoiding loneliness or seeking relatedness, avoiding not feeling stuck or seeking a greater sense of autonomy and a feeling that I can do whatever I want with my life. One of the worst punishments that we have is putting people into prison, taking their autonomy away. The only thing that is worse is to actually take people's existence away. So what do we care for? We care for we care for autonomy, agency, to do what we want. We care for existence, being alive in the first place. 
We care about happiness. No, that's what we tend to care most for. That's the big questions we're asking ourselves, that we want most for our children. Signs of happiness, this is, the Bible almost kind of looks like a Bible, I always thought. <laughs> um, but like, this is the main text for evidence-based interventions in positive psychology. So if you read one book about, posit uh, about positive psychology and interventions, that's very practical, that would be it. Sonia Lubomirsky, The How of Happiness. Um, because there's a lot of interventions out there that work because that person that created them and published them knows that they work because they've done them with their clients or themselves or their friends. But like, there's a scientific process that positive psychologists use to gather evidence, empirical data, on why something works and what's the most effective way of making that work consistently among the most uh, amount of people. So that scientific process is important and this is why positive psychology is particularly important um, because it's not necessarily new ideas but applying the scientific method to these ideas to really test which ones are effective and which ones need to be changed in some way and which ones only work in particular contexts or with a particular kind of person. If somebody offers you a 10-step program to be joyous, joyful and happiness or to change a certain behavior or get rich, anything that is a 10-step process or 5-step process or 1-step process, they're probably marketing to a very specific audience for whom that is most likely to work. There is no one-size-fits-all. You know, that's why it's really difficult to answer questions, how should I be happy or how can I change my behavior? You know, there's things that are patterns that have a tendency to work for people, but really it's a conversation that you need to have to sit down and see what would work for you. If somebody has a lack of focus and like gets distracted all the time, I know some form of meditation will most likely be really, really helpful in that process. But there's hundreds. And people come to you and they say, oh, I've tried meditation, it's not for me. Nobody says that about dating. Everybody had a bad date. <laughs> some people had dates that are really bad for two decades. And they still don't stop dating. They still believe that there is a partner for them out there. Maybe you have struggled with that belief and maybe you feel like, oh, well, maybe it's better to be on my own. And actually, I'm quite happy on my own. I don't need anybody else. But humans are quite hardwired to connect. And that might not be a, a romantic relationship anymore. It might be a non-traditional, non-monogamous relationship or it might be an amazing circle of friends. But we are hardwired to connect. We're social animals. So we're not going to give up on relationships to people. Nobody has ever given up on relationships to people, even people on lonely islands like Robinson Crusoe. They still imagine other people. We always see ourselves in relation to others. So there is a form of meditation out there that can really benefit your life, either for a date or a couple of years or a couple of decades or potentially for the rest of your life. I know people who have found their partner in meditation that will most likely, they will be forever. You know, they'll be together forever and they benefit. So... That's useful. Um, Sonia and her colleagues, this is the happiness pie from 2005, so quite a little while ago. They had done this study and found that half of our happiness is actually quite determined by our genetic makeup. Um, then there's about circumstances that are only about 10%, which I always felt like, wow, really? I thought if I move to a sunnier country, I'll be happier. But actually it shows it doesn't really make that much of a difference. And that about 40% of our happiness we can actually influence by intentional activities. Fantastic, everybody thought, in the first wave of positive psychological research. And then 2018, my colleague Nick Brown uh, and one of his colleagues realized, well, that was actually fairly bad science. 
<laughs> so there's a measurement error there that we couldn't really be quite certain about how much that intentional activity is and how much the circumstances are. They seem to be bigger, but the message still is we can actually do a lot. And this might seem depressing, but even if it's there, there's still a lot that we can do and change and influence. Like if both of your parents were, were addicted to alcohol, chances statistically are at about 79% that you also become an alcoholic. That's looking at the data. But there's 20%, 21% chance in the things that you do that you're not going to be that person. And we should use that. So no matter what that setup is, we can always intervene. Some have it easier, some have it harder. We are dealt different cards in our lives. Like, we can use those cards. Some have to work harder than others to make a certain life happen. But we all have some influence and some control in that. And I really believe that, you know. We are not determined by our makeup. We do have the chance to do something and live that life. And there are so many stories out there of people against the odds have done amazing things. So why is positive psychology important? That seek pleasure bit, that start from the positive and let that pull you, that's really powerful. Um, create that future vision, we've talked about that a little bit, These, the sense of authenticity. Um, there's a strength assessment um, called the VIA, you can do it at authentichappiness.com. Um, you can do a strength of what are my character strengths based on my values and my virtues. You know, so you can get an insight into, well, what's actually going on there? Some of you might be quite self-aware and you, you can name three of your core values that trigger you when you get emotional. There's a value that is touched on. You know, it helps you to know yourself. If you, if you know yourself, the better you know yourself, the more you can create that vision of the future you. You know? something that you value, somebody that you would respect. And then you can work towards that. Start with the end in mind. If you create that person in the future, you can work towards it. But maybe you think, hey, I, I don't need to change. There's a lot of people who say, like, I, I don't need to change. I'm, I'm perfect as I am. I'm wholesome and I'm complete. I don't know what the whole change thing is on about. You know, and I, I admire those people because they tend to be much happier. You know, they also tend to achieve less objectively in terms of where, where they're going in their career perhaps or like um, that there is this sometimes disbelief that if you accept yourself as you are you, you lose the motivation to move forward but that's really not true you can accept yourself as you are right now and then step forward you know just just because you're accepting yourself as you are doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to grow and change but if you say, look, I'm enough right now. I don't need to blame myself for who I am because of all of these circumstances in my life that have made me the person I am today. Yes, maybe you could have studied a little harder 20 years ago or maybe you could have gotten out of that relationship a little bit earlier or tell that person that you love them a little bit earlier. But really, right now is what you have. That's the only thing you have. So accept that, move forward. And that's the push. You know, getting people to think about the end, because we're all going to die, <laughs> probably. <laughs> I still think it's highly likely that we're going to be ending. If people stop dying, people will start dying. Because <laughs> if we find that cure for this death thing, and somebody, a uh, 14-year-old Chuck in school once told me, it's like, yeah, but sir, you're old, and I was like 25 at the time. <laughs> 
uh, we might find a cure for this death thing and I really wanted to argue with it and I couldn't. Um, so yes, it's not that much of a certainty anymore, but it's really use, it, it, I, there's going to be endings and it doesn't have to be death. It can be the end of a meeting, the end of today, the end of a job, the end of your health, the end of um, a relationship or the end of those three years in school or this three year program or perhaps you're on a, on a part on a temporary job. You know, there's endings and they matter and they motivate us greatly. When people turn 50, something happens around that time because it's such a powerful reminder that, you know, maybe I, I don't have all life left. This is maybe halfway through, maybe a lot more. There's still a book I want to write. There, there's still like, people change their lives generally for the better when they have these powerful reminders of I don't have all, I, I don't have an infinity. And they give endings to what we go through, like a meaning to what, what is now. Because why do anything today if we have all infinity to still do it? You know, deadlines, literally deadlines, we call them deadlines. <laughs> They're so useful to produce stuff, to make things happen that are meaningful to us. You know? So we can create those just by maybe thinking ahead. And that's uncomfortable because we don't like to think about death or endings. It's uncomfortable. But it's also really, really useful when we're going to change a behavior. Because generally we change behavior when our happiness, our agency, or our existence are threatened. You know, and, and sometimes even the existence threatening, the diabetes, or the, the I should really start exercising because I know I'm going to live longer. I should really stop smoking because it takes, statistically takes seven years of my life. You know, if you ask yourself those questions, sometimes they're not enough. But if you vividly imagine the end of your life, something happens emotionally. If you really put yourself there and engage all of your senses, imagine how you would, uh, what you would smell, what you would see, what you would hear. So that's really useful. This is really what that was about. I started in positive psychology and I studied some existential and coaching and they all kind of came together and I'm like, that's why it connects with people. Because we have the positive happiness starting with positive emotions and you at your best. It starts off really well. What positive emotions do is they broaden our thought action repertoires. We are more creative when we experience positive uh, emotions. But also there's more. There's this void of when we stop and being still. And we're like, what is this life thing? And why am I doing this anyway? You know, these big questions that pop up when we become still. When we're not distracting ourselves. You know, these are important questions. And... In my experience, they're always there, at least in the background, sometimes screaming very loudly at you when somebody tells you about a problem they have at work or in a relationship. There's these big questions underneath the surface. And that's what existentialism is about. I'm going to say a few bits after the break. And that sense of agency, coaching is really about making a change voluntarily. You know, you taking control and charge over your life and going through a transformation, behavior or mindset or personality. You know, you want to change something, and that's what coaching really is about. Interesting note, by the way, uh, existentialism always has that air of being anti-religious anti and being atheistic. Um, that's actually not the case. Uh, the very first person who wrote about uh, existentialism, by the way, there is no Freud or no Godfather, there is no uh, figurehead. Um, but Søren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, um, he was a devout Christian. He didn't quite, he didn't like the dogma of the, of the church as such, but he had a personal relationship with God, and he was a devout Christian. Um, there's Christian existentialism, there's uh, quite a few existentialists um, who were Christians. 
And um, so it's just on that note, um, I, because I don't, there's so much about existentialism that people think it is about. Um, when actually we look a bit closer, there's a lot of stereotypes out there of like, well, we do talk about death, <laughs> but um, we're not all sitting all dark in existentialists in, in cafes and smoking gouloirs and philosophizing about how nothing means anything and we're all going to die. So happiness. <laughs> I, I came into existentialism through that lens of positive psychological science. And just making sense of happiness can be really useful to think about what kind of behaviors do I actually want and why do I want them. So maybe you ask yourself very simply, on a scale of 1 to 10, how satisfied are you with your life? That's going to give you somewhere, right? It's some subjective element of how well you think your life is going. Fun fact, uh, when that study was done in 84, um, homeless people in Calcutta were at 7.2 and at 7.3 there were college students in California. Very subjective. Here's Seligman's PERMA, engagement, relationships, meaning, achievement, positive emotions. Really good way to start making sense of what happiness is. Um, you've seen uh, self-determination theory as Mick mentioned has that autonomy Competence, or here called environmental mastery, having the skills to deal with whatever environment you're in. Different skill set if you hunt food in the jungle, or if you hunt money in the city. Not necessarily. <laughs> True. Um, positive, positive relationships. So I really like this model because it, it seems to encapsulate a lot. Uh, health has been added to PERMA as a silent age. Very clever. But these things are driving us. This is my, my questionnaire that I tend to give people to monitor progress before and after coaching and sometimes in between as well. I won't go through it all, but I put it in the slides just for you to kind of get a sense. Based on science about what we know influences well-being and some of the things that I have learned influence well-being and happiness and change. So there's a huge area that we can call positive psychology. It's a huge field of science. Um, I'm not going to go into all of that, um, but a lot of interventions have come out of positive psychological science that we can apply. Measurement tools, how we can monitor people on certain aspects of their personality or their well-being. Or um, There has so much to offer and there's so much there. So if you're interested in positive psychology, I recommend you, um, you read into it a bit, uh, watch some talks. Um, there's a couple of resources later on that I can recommend. Just to give you an overview of uh, what kind of things we've studied, uh, character strengths, positive mindsets, people at their best, optimal human functioning, if you make the case that that kind of thing exists, um, positive emotions, I mentioned a, a few of those already, discipline, the big one when it comes to changing and maintaining behavior, engagement, motivation, flow, interventions, but a bunch of other areas. So I just want to give you a quick overview about that's a really rich area of, of science. Problem is, little new stuff, not new ideas. Sometimes overly focused on the positive, sometimes overly focused on the individual. There is a replication crisis within positive psychology where it's difficult to, to take, do the same study and get the same results. And the media often jumps on these kind of results. It's like, um, oh, uh, drinking red wine makes you happy or makes you live longer. Um, it's like, or chocolate and cancer, and all of a sudden you see in the media that based on a correlation, um, chocolate heals cancer. 
great. <laughs> also, there's a correlation between US spending on science, space and technology and suicides by hanging, strangulation and suffocation. If you look at the data over time, there's a very, 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 very high correlation. It's very rare in science to have that kind of correlation. It doesn't mean that one causes the other in any way. There was also, I think, amount of suicides and Nick Cage movies coming out in that year. <laughs> There's some weird correlations. Great stuff. But yes, we need to be careful when we look at the science and we need to be quite rigorous when we want to create policy, for example, or interventions from this kind of science. We need a critical mind when we engage with it. Because it's attractive to take a, a, one study and say, now you must all do this because it will make you happy. One size does not fit all. Das Leben ist kein Ponyhof. <laughs> it's what my, my mom always said. Uh, life's not a pony farm. Which means life is tough. You know, it's hard. There's going to be so many challenges out there. It, it gives you lemons and it throws you curveballs. And like a significant, of, significant amount of time, your life's going to be shit. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Life is suffering is one of the Buddhist maxims. One of the existential maxims is just because you're being, just because you're there, just because you're human and in the world with other people, there will be anxiety, there will be paradox, there will be dilemmas, there's tension. Just as a result of being there, it's inevitable. And acceptance. Acceptance. If we accept that, that helps our well-being tremendously because we stop fighting it. How many people try to fight for example, uncertainty. Uncertainty is one of those things that is ingrained in existence. Heisenberg in physics has proven that there is uncertainty in physics, in measurement. We cannot be certain about things, about nothing. I can try to leave and it might not happen. I might have a heart attack, somebody might stop me, the door might be locked, even though five minutes earlier it was open. Actually, I don't know that, it was an hour ago. Oh my God, am I trapped? Makes me want to check now, but like... <laughs> Uncertainty is part of life. We cannot escape it. But how many people make decisions only when they're certain? How, how many of you do something when you know that you will be succeeding at it? Powerful coaching question is, if you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? Because very often what holds us back from implementing a behavior change or l quitting the 9 to 5 and starting that company is fear of failure. We cannot succeed if we don't take risks. We cannot fall in love unless we make ourselves vulnerable. You know, it's the only way to keep safe is to build that wall. You know, and that will not make us safe either. But how many people now in actual politics believe that a wall will make them safe? It's crazy. So, but we like that certainty and to, like so many people, they, they buy the certainty because we naturally all want certainty. I want certainty. I make decisions when I can be reasonably sure that this is going to work out. I stepped out of my nine to five or four days a week, nine to five in uh, October. And it, it did two things. I, I got a lot more meaning in my life because I, I did things that I really wanted to do that I was passionate, uh, passionate about. But it also opened up a sea of anxiety because if I don't work, I don't earn. So. When we make decisions, that matters. So these guys are keeping it real. <laughs> That's uh, the existential philosophers, or many of them. We have uh, Søren Kierkegaard over there. Uh, we have Sartre, and there's um, 
there's Camus over there and uh, Simone de Beauvoir. These guys in the 19th century, uh, 20th century, um, they've, they've come up with this philosophy. Ph philosophy is a, is a way of producing knowledge that we cannot measure or observe. So we can use the method of philosophy to know things. That's what philosophy does. That's why we had a lot more philosophers thousands of years ago, because our measurement techniques were more, uh, less sophisticated. Now we need less of those. I think we should bring some of them back. But uh, Nietzsche there, for example, he went pretty crazy. Um, Heidegger became a Nazi. Um, uh, Camus is uh, really depressing to read at times. Um, there's, uh, uh, Bukowski had a raging alcohol problem. Um, a lot of these guys, they were, they, they were in despair, you know, they were not particularly happy individuals. And I always thought, why? Because like when I came through it from positive psychology and I, I felt there's so much positivity in there, there's so much liberation in there. If there is no overarching life, a meaning to life, and there are no rules, I can make the rules or accept the ones that I like. Nobody stops me from at least trying to rob a bank and go to Hawaii. <laughs> I, I, I need to deal with the consequences. I, I'll, I'll probably go to jail for a very long time and that will take all of my autonomy and happiness away, so I probably don't want to do that. But I could choose to try. There's, like, we can do anything we want based on that philosophy. Hugely liberating. How many limiting beliefs do we have in our head? Oh, but like, I can't do that. And if you curiously, as a coach, ask, well, why? Why, why couldn't you? Well, because that's not something people do. But could you do it? I mean, technically. Yeah, yeah technically I could. So you could choose to do that. It's like, oh, I never considered that. <laughs> and then some people get really excited. Like um, one of my first coaching clients, she, wanted, she was profoundly unhappy in her studies and she had chosen that degree only to make her parents happy. And she had this profound belief, so we call it sedimented, so fixed, so ingrained that you, you do not, like you can't possibly not finish your degree when you started it. And I'm like, what would happen if you, if you quit? You know, and she allowed herself to just as a thought experiment consider that and realize that is an option. It would like enrage her parents and she might never speak to them again, but she could. And actually she realized that probably forgive her if she really talked to them honestly about how she felt about it and having half a proper plan in place so that her parents could stop worrying about what she's going to do later on. So just considering this opens up possibilities. And I think that's a quite a positive thing. It's very liberating. But a lot of it is what we can't change. We can't change being human. And what does it mean to be human? What do we carry as a result of simply being there? I mentioned that anxiety. And what the, the existentialists uh, disagree on a lot of things. What they agree on is this thing that we call the human condition. You know, there are certain givens as a, as a result of being alive and in the world with others. One is there's endings and they matter. There's freedom. We, we get to choose, but we also have to choose. Isolation means that we are wired to connect with people and in our first relationships, for example, we, we try to merge with another person and then we go to the cinema or we think this or we think that. Um, but it never works. Even if you're married for 60 years, sometimes you, you, can, you can read your partner's mind 
you, you, you kind of know what they're thinking, but every now and then again, they absolutely baffle you and you had no idea that that was going on for them. You know, we cannot read thoughts yet. <laughs> um, meaninglessness, that sense of like, we're always, we're meaning making machines. We make sense of things. Um, we can't help but making sense of things. It's a huge asset for human beings to figure out patterns. But some people spend decades of their life trying to figure something out that maybe was just absurd. You know, maybe there was no reason for this. You know, why did this child have to die? Or why did this person leave me? Or why did I get fired from this job? Or maybe it was coincidence. What if there was coincidence? And I know some of you will say, well, there is no coincidence. Everything is written. There is a path for everybody. You know, there, there is a meaning and a purpose for every single human being. And you have your part in life. You just need to find that, that purpose in that sense. But you cannot prove it. You, you can only choose to believe it. And I'm not saying that one or the other is true. I don't know. I'm very open to the idea of an afterlife. I, might, I cannot disprove it. I just, with what I know, I concluded that probably not. For me, that's my personal belief. I'd rather make the best out of my life now because that's what I know. I know right now is probably real. Maybe we're in the matrix, but like... <laughs> I choose to believe this is real because otherwise I'd probably despair. <laughs> so... I can choose to believe that I make the rules, that I have an impact, that what I do matters. And if I choose to believe that, then I think I live better because I feel I have an impact. It also means if something goes wrong, that was on me. I, like, I cannot, like, if something that I do fails, maybe I could have done it better. I need to own that as well. I cannot say, look, things happen, all things happen for a reason. Don't worry about it. You can say that if you have that other kind of belief system. But in existential coaching, what's important is that you figure out what your belief system is and then act accordingly. You know, if, if you believe one or the other or anything in between, it's important that you are aware of what your worldview is and what your belief system is. Do you believe there is a God? Do you believe there is no God? Atheism is a belief system. It's a faith. You believe that there is none. If you believe in one God, you don't believe in the other 2,999. So I'm not saying one or the other is the way to go, but for you to choose what you believe and some of them open up possibilities for change and action and others close them down. So uncertainty, these are uncertainty, choice, responsibility, change, purpose and direction. We always compare ourselves to other people, but also they usually inspire us and motivate us if you're very competitive. You know, other people really help you produce more and be better and grow faster. So there's all of these themes that come out of this human condition. And it's really useful to think about that in terms of what motivates us to change. So keeping it real with a really positive attitude. Uh, this is Jason Silver here, some of my colleagues at the University of East London, our former colleagues. This is Paul Wong, the uh, founder of Positive Existentialism. If we bring these two together, we, we, can, uh, we can approach this seemingly dark existential philosophy, but from a positive mindset. I'm going to read that to you. Um, embracing existence in its contradictions, rising to its challenges. You know, maybe there is no such thing as perfect, even though that could really focus everything that we do. 
Learning to be resilient and flexible enough to negotiate these paradoxes that we all hold. I want to belong, I also want to be an individual. I don't want to think about death, but I also want to be motivated by deadlines. You know, I want to, I want to connect with other human beings, but they also freak me out because they remind me that I'm different than everybody else. You know, I make sense of things, sometimes things are absurd. Or are they? So all of these paradoxes that we hold at the same time, they can really motivate us because energy flows between two poles in electricity. Uh, if you've seen lightning, you know, it unloads when the earth is loaded negative and the cloud is loaded positive and then it releases energy. So this is what makes us human. You know, this stuff is like anxiety. I'm being, being nervous about a talk you're about to give. You know, that's excitement. It's just a different name we give it. One has a positive spin, the other one has a negative spin. But they, they're all the same. Like, nobody, like, well, not nobody, but most people, if you ask them about something that they are proud of or their biggest stories, most of the good stories, they involve a challenge, overcoming something. Uh, all the good movies, like all my favorite movies, they involve somebody dealing with a life or death situation, struggling to belong in the world, asking themselves questions around meaning and purpose, having a big decision to make or a small decision to make. You know, the, the big stories, they have all of these themes because everybody who's human can relate to them. And then adding science to that philosophy, you know, because we, I can make you happier with a very quick intervention. You know, you can take a substance to be happier for a few hours. You can meditate, uh, loving kindness meditation. You can watch, go through that photo album with all of your favorite memories. You can, um, you can adopt a different pose with your body. You can just force yourself to smile for a couple of minutes. It's going to have an effect on your well-being. You know, so there's these quick fix interventions, but they're not going to last. So if you're about thinking about sustainable happiness, we want to think, how can I embrace this human condition and take a positive mindset on it? Because if we adopt that, then we, start, we stop fighting the inevitable and we can start taking an influence and changing those little behaviors that we can exert an influence over and accept that maybe some things we can change. That what we call facticity. You know, I, I, I think you cannot choose whether you're born or not, even though there's this lawsuit now of the antenatalist who sues his parents for giving birth to him because he didn't agree to it. That's a thing. And there's a philosophical argument for it. So it's not complete nonsense. That's why it's allowed in a courtroom. Like, wow. And a, a yogi master once challenged me on that. He's like, oh, thrownness, this existential concept of we're being thrown into this world. We cannot choose which language we speak when we are like, when we learn to speak a language. So it, I think it's comforting to know that we're getting thrown into this world. At some point, we're getting ripped out of it. We don't really know when and how. I find comfort in that. You know, other people say like, well, wait, do you really know that? There's, there's people who I've discussed this at depth with who say, no, I did have a choice there. I believe I chose to be here in this world. And imagine how good that feels if you believe that you chose to be here. It's hugely empowering. And it's interesting to just see the faces because some is like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And some is like, that's absolute and utter bullshit. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. So we don't know. We don't know, but we choose to believe. And that choice to believe something is so powerful. And I didn't quite get it until quite late in my life. But quite a lot earlier, it turns out, as a lot of other people, is that you, you choose to be happy. I'm like, yeah, but you don't because there's circumstances. 
Yeah, but there's so much choice that you have within those circumstances. Without lying to yourself. You know, you can be real and still positive. You can embrace the suffering as the stuff that makes you human. You can embrace that challenge with a growth mindset. You know, see a challenge or a failure as an opportunity to learn. Hmm. Right, this is what I mentioned in terms of energy is created. So we can create meaning in life by just saying, look, that feels meaningful to me, so it is meaningful. For everything that you believe is right, there's somebody in the world who thinks you're a despicable human being. <laughs> Extremist terrorism, you know, they believe they're doing the right thing. Hitler probably thought he was doing the world a favor by getting rid of all the Jews. It's demented, but he thought that was right, and he really believed it to an extent that he did all the things that he's done. It, yeah, exactly. So if you talk to an ISIS fighter, um, tell them to call a therapist, <laughs> first of all. Um, but they would tell you, this is the right thing to do. You know, I really, truly believe in this. That's why we have people fighting. There's always going to be conflict. Conflict is inevitable just because we're different. We have different worldviews, different beliefs. We tend to surround ourselves by people who think like us, who are more similar than us in terms of our values. But like, there's even the small differences lead to clashes in friends groups that are already connected through a common shared interest. If you think globally, there's, there will always be conflict as long as there are people as a result of being human. But we can create meaning in our lives. We can choose what we believe. This is kind of the same thing, just a different... Like, do you read the last page of the book first? I know some people do. Mm. Most people don't, because we would take away the excitement of reading that book. If you go to a sports game, you kind of don't want to know how it ends. There's an episode of Black Mirror where as soon as you go on a first date, you can check how long the relationship is going to last. And some get eight hours, and some get 36 years. What, what if it's eight years, and you want to have kids, and you're 32, and you're like, we're going to break up when I'm 40. Hmm. I wouldn't want to know that if I go on a first date, how long that lasts. And most people choose not to take the red pill, if I make a matrix analogy. Would you rather know everything? Or would you rather stay in your illusion? If, if we were to know everything in life, life would be really boring because we like excitement. We don't like change because it involves uncertainty. But if things don't change, even when things are good, we start getting depressed. Because we're human, we need change. You know, if we don't change, we get itchy. You know, we have a natural instinct to learn. Mm -hmm. Endings as well, they give meaning to our life. They put perspective on everything that we, that we experience. They're a fantastic motivator. But we don't really like endings when they're coming up. These are the big choices. These are the small choices. <laughs> Sometimes you see the small choices and you can hear the big choices behind. The small ones, they affect the big ones and vice versa. So how do we induce change? Thanks for the question, Jan. <laughs> how to enjoy the process more. We can, for example, make an activity more fun. And that's individual to any of you. But if you have something that you don't particularly like, like maybe you listen to music while you work 
Or maybe you do it with a friend. Or you surround yourself with people who are like-minded. Or maybe you work in teams and you don't like that. Maybe you're better on your own. Maybe you um, introduce an element of gamification. Or like make it playful. Or find somebody to compete with. Depends on the kind of person you are. But there's a lot of things that you can, um, like I work a lot with flow and engagement, like based on flow theory, you can actually redesign an activity that you used to dread and make it enjoyable because you start using your strengths and you start like you, you reconnect to something that you were intrinsically motivated for. How many people have lost their initial passion for their job after 20 years? Some people reconnect with why they entered that job in the first place. You know, to reconnect to that intrinsic motivation to do it. We pay people and sometimes that's the worst thing we can do. You know, because then at some point we do it for the pay. We don't do it because we like it. And if you're wondering what am I intrinsically motivated to do, just think about hobbies that you have. Things that you don't get paid for. Things that you don't have to do, that you do on your own accord. Here's a range of positive psychology interventions and I won't go into them because uh, I'd love to talk to you and have some time for questions. Um, the how of happiness, they're going to be in there. These are the ones that are evidence-based. So they, it doesn't mean that all the others that don't have evidence don't work. Do what works. But these are evidence-based. They are more likely, most likely to work for a large amount of people. Um, that's a good question to ask yourself at some point. What if you had a magic wand or a miracle had happened and tomorrow you wake up and it's as if it's 10 years have gone by and everything went really, 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 really well. Describe that day to you. You know, write down your average like, a day in your life. Write yourself a letter on how that day would look like. Engage all of your senses. Create that vision. Existentially, creating a courage to just be. It takes courage to exist and to look at it. Because we keep distracting ourselves with work, with like our phones, like uh, with stupid things that really, why, why, why am I reading this? I'm not really interested in what kind of potato I am. <laughs> but there's a quiz on BuzzFeed and it seemed like better than sitting in the anxiety about not having enough time for my deadline. But then as soon as I get out of that and I know what kind of potato I am, <laughs> jazz, <laughs> um, yeah, then the anxiety comes back. So we do another thing that distracts us. And some people live their whole lives like that. Some addiction is based on that. You know, some jobs are based on that. The, the top managers who work so much, even when they're on holiday, they keep working. Or when they're on an actual holiday, they go whitewater rafting. So they're so busy that they don't, need to, they don't have to sit on the beach and allow all of the anxiety creeping in about, who have I become? You know? I was so idealistic when I was like 25 and now I'm part of the big corporate machine. Or you might think like I always wanted to be part of the corporate machine and now I'm sitting here on a beach in Thailand doing fuck all. <laughs> so taking a leap of faith, not knowing, bridging anxiety, bridging uncertainty. Go do it. Commit to something even though you don't know. That takes courage. Find something. Choose meaning. Accept that you're responsible, that you have the freedom, you get to have that freedom. Create a relationship that isn't an I-it relationship where, you, where you, you objectify everything else. Really relate, really be with somebody from one human to another human. All of these other things, we just it's layers on top. First and foremost, we exist. Then we introduce some kind of essence. You are not your job title. You are not your skin, color of skin or your age or your sense of humor. 
You know, and if you connect from that level to yourself and to others, that's powerful stuff. Understand more. You know, create some kind of truth for yourself. Explore what you think and what you believe and then make those decisions based on that. If you get to a sense of authenticity, of like, that really feels truly authentic, think back to a time when you were really happy. What were you doing? A time when you were at your best, when you were feeling really fulfilled. What were the elements in your life that created that? Based on that, you can recreate it and a lot of behaviors either come from that sense of authenticity or you can figure out, well, what do I need to change in order to become that person? Top-down change, spiritual change or belief values change, awareness change in order to let all of the other behaviors flow. Looking back, would you regret something? Really put yourself there. You could imagine your funeral and what people say about you in their speeches or as you are playing mouse and listening to other conversations. What do you want to leave behind? What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Maybe you don't care about anybody, but maybe you do want to leave something behind. You know, and that, that can guide how you want to live. And that awareness, that, that's why around 50 a lot of things change because people have told me in, in the coaching room that they just can't look away from that anymore. They try to distract themselves, but they just, there's this creeping feeling of like, I should really write this book. I should really quit that job, or I should really start that charity, or I should have that kid. I think a lot of that came out already, befriending uncertainty, appreciating dialectics, appreciating that there's always two sides of a coin. Fall in love with that challenge. By the way, how am I doing on time? All right. Um, fostering resilience. Keep it real, but focus on the positive. Change happens in a state of discomfort. Uh, there's a video that I'd love to play with you, but I'd rather leave time for questions. Um, I recommend this TED Talk by uh, Bill Ekstrom, Why Comfort Will Ruin Your Life. On the other hand, there's also uh, Alan Watts. Uh, this is an awesome portrayal of like, well, if I, if I have this flower and like, it moves with the wind, like some change happens effortlessly. But a lot of change takes a lot of courage and a lot of discomfort. So it's interesting what you think about that. And I want to leave them there for you later on to, to engage with it. Um, because they're more philosophical. They're not so much around this topic. But I wanted to put that out there because I love making people think. Um, get a coach. Because that is, that is the most powerful relationship that I know to induce change. We cannot see all of our blind spots. We can't. You know, by definition, because we're us, you know. There's so many out there, so many different ones. Find somebody that, that you connect with. It's mostly about the relationship you have with that person. You know, that is the driving factor, that, that space of confidential um, relatedness from one human being to another. Science says the approach that you take, the individual approach, humanistic or existential or psychodynamic, actually only matters around 50%. It makes up 50% of the success. You know, the relationship is about half. That's the change process. In coaching, you would think, well, where do I want to be? What is it now? How could I get there? And how exactly am I going to do that? It's very simple. Sometimes it's really that simple. Often it's very complex. And so you can do that at home just thinking about it. But with a coach, you can really hone down the individual differences and what kind of intervention would work for you. I should use this space to say my book is coming out on April 16th. 
if you wanted to learn more about existential coaching, uh, that's a lot of years condensed into a book. If uh, there are coaches, but also if you're just interested in, a, in an existential take on life with a positive twist on it, um, that would be a good resource. If you want to learn more about positive psychology, I'm starting a new course, uh, actually launching uh, before this month is over, and I didn't set myself a deadline other than that. Um, when that comes out, sometime within the next week, uh, the price will double, so if you wanted to sign up to that, it's, it's made for coaches, but it's introducing all of positive psychology <coughs> that is relevant to change. So I think a lot of non-coaches would still get a lot of value on that, and it's dirt cheap compared to other coaching courses out there, so um, just wanted to leave that there. Um, I work with other coaches as well. Um, if that's you, I'd love to talk to you because I, I love working with people to kind of push boundaries of what they're doing and how they can help other people uh, grow and change. Because I want to help people change. And if you help somebody change and be better at helping other people change and be better, that kind of generative effect, that's why I teach. You know, If you work with one person, you can reach millions of others depending on what that person is going to do afterwards. And do reach out. My, I say my, my doors are almost always open. <laughs> I, I am getting married next month, so there is a door that's closed for a couple of weeks. <laughs> I also have a monthly newsletter that I call Nuggets. They're like kind of these kind of stories from my coaching or my personal life um, or resources, interesting things that I came across. Make, if you like thinking, um, that's something you might want to uh, sign up to. And there's a couple of free books on my website about positive psychology and existentialism. Um, and with that, I want to say thank you very much for listening. Actually, it's not really a question, but mm -hmm. my voice is going as well. Um, I thought I'd share something that you might find interesting because you mm -hmm. talked about um, relationships and not wanting to know when the end might be. But um, one of my very close friends, when I met her and her husband, they actually were quite open about the fact that they planned to divorce in 10 years' time. Wow. Which I found very interesting. And actually, they met in their early 40s, mm -hmm. and they, they liked each other, they found in love, mm -hmm. and they both wanted to have children, but they also had very different kind of ambitions in life and places right. where they wanted to end up. And interestingly, this, this kind of setting this deadline and, and kind of entering a short-term or medium-term <coughs> marriage contract mm -hmm. kind of took away these pressures of, you know, I'm going to have to compromise for the rest of yeah. my life. And this is a, a you know, one-person commitment, all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And actually, they're able to really relax and enjoy mm -hmm. this loving family with mm -hmm. their children and kind of know that they'll have this sort of freedom later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it reminds me, like, when, when, <coughs> when a doctor might tell you, you've got six months to live. How appreciative of, are you of every day from then on? But what if they say you have 32 years to live? Yeah. <laughs> you might forget about that at some point, but then you get a reminder of it again. But like that, that knowing exactly when something ends helps us to appreciate it more because you know it's going to end. Yeah. You know, taking the, getting the most out of it while it still lasts. So absolutely, this can have a huge effect, a huge positive effect as well. Mm -hmm. But the uncertainty is difficult to deal with, right? It's much more difficult, like, yeah, it can go both ways. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Hi, thank you for a great, great and thought-provoking uh, lecture. Uh, so my question pertains to the, uh, to the claim you made that we need change. As humans, we, we don't want to take the red, red pill. We, mm -hmm. we need to, to strive towards change. Mm -hmm. But before that, you mentioned that there are some people who have a very fixed mindset that don't actually embrace change, but then again, they do report mm -hmm. being happy, if not happier. Mm -hmm. So how do you account for that discrepancy then? Yeah, so 
we we want if we if we come from a perspective of like if there is no change we have certainty and we like certainty but when nothing changes we like when babies are born they naturally explore we we have this innate want to learn you know no baby doesn't learn it just doesn't happen it's a very human thing to learn and grow you know and like where that growth is going into you might say oh that's actually a reduction but like we have this need for learning changing um for uh, novelty you know we like novelty we adapt to things this adaptability of human beings is one of our greatest strengths and one of our greatest curses you know because we adapt to both the good things and the bad things when something bad has happening and then we adapt to it it's a really good thing for us but if if we are like there's some people out there who live the perfect lives objectively and you're like you should be happy why are you depressed but like if there is no challenge and there is no sense of achievement is there is no sense of movement and people don't like that so i think the paradox is that we like the certainty of knowing the devil we know sometimes we stay in very toxic relationships just because we know what's what we're in it's much more comfortable than stepping out into the uncertain sea you know not knowing what it might be better it might be worse we might leave an abusive partner and end up with a much more abusive partner you know so we we have that dichotomy that that it's a paradox it's difficult to hold paradox in our minds because we kind of want both things to stay the same and things to change that does that make sense Hi, thanks, Janet. Uh, just actually going back to this point, uh, you know, that you addressed now partly with how to enjoy the process. One of the things I'm interested in, very interesting, is fear. In the sense that in the past, I used to think fear, you know, you couldn't do anything about that. Mm -hmm. Somebody said to me, fear is a character defect. I'm like, okay. Huh. I find that I'm obviously I, I'm drawn to things where I'm more competent, and that that can be good. I can achieve a lot in areas where I'm competent. Mm -hmm. so there is growth in that. There is positive stuff. But I can see also the areas where I have fears, especially the, the deepest fears. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm much, I find it much much harder to go there. Although in a way, there's perhaps more growth there because you know, you know, mm -hmm. those are areas where I really have not explored and certainly not mm -hmm. mined my potential because I've been afraid to go there. And right. So, you know, challenging those. But it's yeah, it's not easy to go against the fear. And so Oof. Yeah. Fears are. <laughs> yeah, don't just don't feel fear. <laughs> don't be scared, mate. <laughs> it's gonna be okay. <laughs> Look at the bright side. No, um, fear is a, such a powerful thing because, like, first of all, Jan is not a stooge. I added that slide uh, earlier this morning when you asked the question, and I'm like, oh, I actually do have some answers for that. Um, feeling the fear, the existential coach, like it's. I have I trained a lot of coaches and when they get to a, in a situation where their client is scared about something they want to help them out and make the fear go away and support them like when your child is scared you want to make that fear go away so that they can be comfortable but actually very often what we are scared of is often the thing that we really need to be doing you know the fear is there in our bodies still from thousands of years ago when we were walking through the jungle and there were little uh, the, the, there might be animals or like there might be there's danger all the time and our fear has helped us survive run away when we needed to but now a lot of the things that we're scared of we don't need to run away from them 
actually engaging with it rationally we know would give us the benefits that we wanted but emotionally we don't know because we we don't evolve that quickly in terms of our our human body so we have all of this irrational fears that are rooted in our past that now don't make sense anymore talking to somebody that you're attracted to in a nightclub or a social event you know what are really the repercussions nowadays back in the day you might talk to somebody who's liaised with a tribe leader and then their their associates come and bash your head in with a stone you know so if we talk to somebody in the jungle who we don't know they might kill us and take all our tools you know so we have this inbuilt fears that now we know they're no longer helpful they're no longer useful so what is useful is to get into a dialogue with that fear to first of all not take it away because it's helpful it's a, it's pointing to something that is of importance otherwise we wouldn't be scared and then get into a dialogue what do, what do i have to learn from this feeling you can externalize it some uh, some of my clients called their fear i don't know dave or steven or cindy and they said like hey hey cindy um thanks for showing up you you'll be looking out for me i appreciate that what should i look out for and then say oh thanks very much but i actually thought this through and it's no longer relevant for me you you're a bit like you can't see that because you're too old um and actually i'm going to do this anyway is that okay no it's not okay i i don't care <laughs> thanks for showing up but i'm going to do this anyway because you are not your fears you can be in control of your fears and people have shown over and over again that we can manage and accept our fears we can actually befriend them so if we don't fight them and we allow them to happen and existentially this anxiety as well don't take it away by getting into all kinds of action plans and goal setting immediately you know it's tempting to go there but maybe it's much more powerful to sit with somebody in that uncertainty in that meaninglessness what's it like to be human what's it like to not know rather than okay what can we do to uh, get you to know stuff and build a strategy so you can live the life you want maybe take some time to just experience yourself and look into that and then you can still strategize and move forward on that basis I just had a question about um, you brought up Anthony Robbins slide a while ago, mm -hmm. um, and I found that when I first started engaging with that type of coaching, um, I had some good results, but also it kind of tapped into my perfectionism, or yeah. I definitely felt like, uh, a huge sense of pressure, mm -hmm. continuous pressure, and that actually made me ill almost. Mm -hmm. um, whereas your approach seems, seems like you're you know, existential coaching, those two things have a, there's a paradox in there. <laughs> so you're moving people forward, but you're also um, wanting them to accept mm -hmm. actually their limitations. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder how you help people not fall into traps of either perfectionism or despair <clears throat> in those two poles. Right. So the thing is, with an approach it's it's difficult when you when you work existentially first and foremost you connect as two human beings and you sit down and you appreciate for somebody for being human then once you get a sense for why are they there for what do they want to get out of the coaching space uh, then you can start to think okay what do i have in my toolbox that might help them to get that so if we take that time first to get to know somebody to figure out or hear 
between the lines what their values are, what their beliefs are, what their strengths are, what do they care about, what's important to them. Then we start to get to know that person at a deeper level across their existential dimensions. You know, how do they relate to themselves? How do they relate to the world? How do they relate to their spiritual dimension, their belief system, their faith, you know, their, their values? Um, and how do they relate to the physical environment? So when we grasp somebody at that level, there's a holistic human being sitting in front of you. That perfectionism, I would probably hear that quite quickly in the way that you talk about things, and I'd be curious about that. You know, how you relate to a goal or an outcome or a process. You know, maybe some of your past messages will bubble up inadvertently. You know, we have all of these messages from our parents, from society, um, there's from advertising, like there's all of these people that tell you how to live well. So you start hearing how you relate to that and that, that perfectionism will be there and I'll, I'll check that back and I'll reflect that back and mirror it and you hear yourself talk and we, we get to know each other on that level. And then we can decide, okay, so what do you want to do? Because if, if somebody says, oh, I want to lose weight, we can jump on that straight away and we go, okay, um, how much smart goals? How much exactly? Weight, losing, losing weight is great for a smart goal. It's specific, very specific, it's very measurable. Uh, depending on how much weight you want to lose, it's realistic. It, you can check whether that's relevant to your values and beliefs, and you can put a deadline to it. <coughs> Fantastic. So a lot of coaches jump on that. But maybe it's not really about losing the weight. Maybe it's about liking yourself. Maybe it's about fitting into a dress. Maybe it's about getting accepted by other people. Maybe you want to get into a modeling job or um, you know, get somewhere where you actually have to lose the weight. Maybe you're an athlete and you need to compete. So what's the motivation behind it and how do you experience yourself and how do you relate to that goal? Coaching just opens up other possibilities to get what you actually want. It doesn't mean we're not going to work on the weight, we still might do that. But if it's about liking yourself and losing weight has never worked for you, maybe you don't need to force yourself to lose the weight. Maybe there's other avenues towards liking yourself or getting accepted by other people than losing the weight. So you don't waste time trying to lose the weight. So in that sense, it's a different kind of coaching approach for anybody who steps through that door, depending on what they want and what they need and what I'm able and willing to do. You know, by definition of the, the, the nature of the existential questions can open up a space that is on the edge to therapy. And sometimes I sit there and I'm like, this is surely indistinguishable from therapy right now. I don't have formal therapy training, but like that's where the contracting comes in in the beginning. If you lay out your approach as best as you can and you say, look, there's a boundary and the boundary is when I know I'm not the right person for you to work on this. And that's why supervision is so important for everybody who works in like close psychological contact with people. You need to figure out where your own line is and when you overstep it, you feel it emotionally. You need to be aware and able to tune into that. So when that point comes, when you overstep a line of competency and there's some risk involved of keeping working with that person, then you need to say, look, remember one of those lines that I mentioned that we don't quite know exactly where it is? I think we just overstepped it because I can feel it. And like I have a couple of people that if you wanted to keep working on this particular thing, I would recommend you to one of my colleagues. You know, you talk to one of them. Um, but like you can work on these like, big existential questions or somebody says, look, I just want to be happier and I, 
I, I want to do that within the next six weeks and I don't really care so much long term. I can still work with that, but in a different way. So you always have to make these decisions as to how to work with an individual person. I don't think there is a 10-step plan for happiness and well-being. I think it's different for everybody. Well, there's some things that really work. For example, uh, meditation and regular physical exercise. Good diet and good sleep. You know, this is the closest you get to a magic pill for health and well-being. And it's really simple to do technically. But then there's a lot of stuff and a lot of complexity that is involved with it. And you can only really shine a light on that complexity in a conversation from one individual to the other. And then you make a plan together. Thank you. Hey guys, Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show.